This morning, I want to invite you to take your Bibles and turn to the book of Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3. Uh, starting next Sunday, we'll go back to the book of Mark and pick back up where we left off, which would be uh, Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10. And we will hopefully finish Mark um, right around uh, Easter or just after Easter. So um, we'll still have about three or four uh, months left uh, before we complete the book of Mark. But that's where we're going. Uh, Wednesday nights we have been reading through the book of Philippians and just not really preaching through it as much as just reading through the book. And then uh, just kind of verse by verse, sometimes word by word, phrase by phrase, uh, just uh, pulling out those great truths that the Apostle Paul is teaching us from this book. Uh, I won't go into any great detail, but let me do set a, some of the context of the book. It is often called the book of joy uh, because joy is the most used word in the book. The word joy or the word rejoice is most often used. Uh, it is written from a prison cell in Rome uh, where Paul, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, is chained to a member of what is called the Praetoria Guard, which would be the elite uh, fighting force of, uh, of Rome. And so Paul is always chained to one of these guards. Uh, in Roman prison, it's unlike American prison, it is not three hots in a cot. Um, there is no bed to lay down on, only the ground. Uh, there are no meals served unless someone from the outside of their good graces uh, brings you a meal. Um, it is a very bleak situation. Uh, we think prison is rough in our day. Uh, prison is nothing more than uh, a resort compared to what Paul was enduring. And yet he had some uh, people on the outside that made sure that his needs were met and that he was taken care of. And Paul reminds us that uh, these the circumstances that he, that he finds himself in, this Roman prison, it, it is not a bad situation. As a matter of fact, Paul says these circumstances have not only served him well, but his circumstances have served the gospel well. That the gospel is being preached and the gospel is being go it has gone out uh, because he is in prison. Paul also says that uh, many have been encouraged uh, by Paul's imprisonment. Why? Because they see uh, Paul's uh, uh, remaining, uh, uh, well, Paul's steadfast dedication uh, to the Lord. His unwavering faith in the midst of difficulty. And Paul, in his writing from this prison, reminds people that the, the key to successful Christian living is not you in different circumstances, but Christ in you. And so as we are coming up on um, what most people believe to be the most life-changing day of the year, that's coming up Saturday, January the 1st has holds some mythical power in the minds of uh, we uh, pitiful human beings as though 
that one day, that, that change of the calendar holds some kind of power for change in the future. And so I thought since change is on our mind and, and resolution is on our mind and, and promises are on our mind and, and maybe a new way of living or a new way of thinking uh, is on our mind. I, I thought what I would do is I would just bring you a biblical perspective on, on how you should live your life, whether it's December the 31st or January the 1st or July the 31st or whatever day that it might be. And Paul gives, that to, gives this to us in his letter to the Philippians. Now, we're only going to focus in on three verses, but we're going to read 16 verses in order to kind of get a feel of the letter. Because remember, this is a letter. Paul is, is in prison, and he is writing with his own hand on parchment and with ink. He is writing a letter to this very real church and a very real place. And this is what he says. It's only four chapters long. Now, when Paul wrote the letter, uh, let, me, let me remind you of this. There, he did not write it in chapter and verse. Uh, there was no such thing as chapter and verse. That is something that uh, Bible translators added in the 16th century. And the reason why we added that is so that it would make it easier to find where the preacher was preaching. Okay? That's why we, that's why we put them in there. But... When it was originally written, no chapters and verses, and something else is interesting. You see on the screen, uh, the first verse has two sentences that make up the first verse. In the original language, uh, there are no periods. Uh, Paul writes this one letter as one giant run-on sentence. And theologians debate why he did that. Why did Paul write this letter in one long sentence? And many believe that the reason why he did that is because Paul's joy was so great uh, in writing this letter that when he put his pen to the parchment, he was so excited that he did not stop to consider any type of punctuation. This was the kind of joy that Paul had in the midst of his imprisonment. And so Paul writes these words, Finally, my brothers, those are Christians, those that have been born again into the family of God. Rejoice, there's that word, rejoice in what? In the Lord. He doesn't say rejoice in your circumstances, but rejoice in the Lord in your circumstances. To write the same things to you is, is uh, no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. And we don't have time to go into all this. I'm just kind of setting the stage for the verses we want to focus in on. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh. Here's what Paul's about to do. He's about to give you his resume of what his life was like before he met Jesus. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. What, is, what Paul is doing there, he is just simply saying, if anybody could have got into heaven based on his own merit, I'm that guy. You got that? 
That's what Paul is saying. If anyone could have got into heaven based on their own merit, I'm the guy. Notice what he says. Notice that first word. That's an important word, but. What does that basically do? Anytime you use but in a sentence, it totally negates everything you just said. But whatever, I, whatever gain I had, I counted it for loss for the sake of Christ. What is he saying? He's saying, whatever I had done to try to get into heaven, I'd count all of that as loss. Why? Because none of that gets me into heaven. Only Christ alone can get me into heaven. Make me right, righteousness, make me right with God. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus, Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. Did you hear what he said? Because I follow Jesus, I have suffered the loss of a lot. We don't hear that preached much anymore, right? We don't hear people telling congregations and big conferences and large crowds, hey, guess what? If you follow Jesus, the likelihood of you losing a lot is great. But look at what Paul says. I count all of them as rubbish, garbage, waste. Why? In order that I might gain Christ. Paul says the most important thing in life is Christ. Bar none. Everything else is rubbish. And be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. That refers back to his testimony. Again, he's like, look, I'm not trying to get into heaven based on my own merit. I've learned because of the law that no matter how good I thought I was, I was really not good at all, but the chief of all sinners. But that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Paul is saying you can't be righteous by your own works. The only way to truly be righteous is by the righteousness of Christ, the perfection of Christ, the goodness of Christ, by faith. That I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death that by any means possible I may obtain the resurrection from the dead. Now here's our verses today. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but here it is, one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those who are mature think this way, and if, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. I want to go back and, oh, let me finish this last verse. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Let's start with the, back in verse 12. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect. Now, if this text doesn't do anything else, it should put an end to all the dreams of sinless perfection in this life. Paul begins with an honest admission. I'm not there yet. You know how you need to start, not 2022, But do you know how you need to end 2021? I'm not there yet. 
I'm not there yet. Unlike so many contemporary leaders, Paul had no problem admitting his own personal shortcomings. He isn't perfect yet, and he knows it. And this becomes the place where his spiritual growth begins. Being honest with yourself is where true spiritual growth begins. Do you know why we have so little spiritual growth in our churches? It's because we have so many people pretending like they are something that they're not. You know what we need? A divine dissatisfaction. That's what we need. We need a divine dissatisfaction. Why? Because being dissatisfied with where you are spiritually is what is needed to grow spiritually. Some of us, I mean, we're not necessarily excited about our spiritual growth, but maybe a lot of us this morning find ourselves in a position where we're definitely not dissatisfied with our spiritual growth. You see, the work of Jesus is perfection. Listen, when, when, when you were saved, at that moment, in the eyes of God Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, the moment that you placed your faith in Jesus Christ alone as your Savior, the moment you said, I cannot save myself, I cannot do a good, enough good works to save myself, I trust in what Christ has done alone, in that moment, the Bible teaches us that you became a perfect individual. Jesus can't make you any more perfect than you are at that moment. So the work of Christ in salvation is complete. You're saved. You're perfect. But the work of the Spirit... The work of the Spirit is not perfect. What do I mean by that? The reality... So, listen. Here's how you got to think about it. God declares us to be perfect. But the reality, the reality of it is we're not there yet in our day-to-day -day life. And so the, the work of the Holy Spirit is to perfect in us what has not been, what is not perfect, which is everything about us. So the only way I get into heaven is I have to be perfect. What, at salvation, Jesus declares me to be perfect. But here I am, still living on planet Earth, Saved, but yet still sinning. And so if I'm perfect, how can I still sin? And that's exactly what the Holy Spirit begins to work out in our life. He begins to move us into what is real about us. What's real? In God's eyes, I'm perfect. What's yet my reality? That perfection. What does the Holy Spirit do? He is moving me in small, incremental ways towards that perfection. Now, 
this process carries on day to day. And guess what? It will be carried on until you die. You will never reach that, that perfection here on earth. You will only reach it in your death. So the question sometimes people ask, well, you know what? I mean, if, if, I won't be, if I can't be perfect here on earth, then why even pursue something that's not attainable on earth? And the reason is, is because this is what God tells us to pursue. This is what God tells us to pursue. Why? Because this pursuit makes us more like him and shows the world more of who he is. Let's, well, let, let, me, let me read you a, a quote here. Maybe, maybe this might help us this morning. A guy named Paul Billhammer in a book called Overcomers Through the Cross, reminds us that just as God takes many years to produce an oak tree, he also takes a lifetime to mature a saint. Christian growth is a process that takes time. Billheimer reminds us that an, an unripe apple is not fit to eat, but we should not, therefore, condemn it. It is not yet ready for eating because God is not done making it. It is a phase of its career and, a good, and good in its place. Listen, we Americans are always looking for some shortcut in the, what is difficult, right? Whatever that might be, physical exercise, losing weight, learning something. Anybody in here ever bought the Cliff Notes version of a book? Anybody in here gone online to purchase a test or find, try to find somebody from the previous year's class? Hey, do you still have, I, I heard so-and-so still gives the same test that they gave last year. By, by chance, do you have a copy of that test? I mean, we're always looking for shortcuts. Listen, there are no shortcuts in spiritual growth. There's no easy path to spiritual growth. It's difficult. It's a slow process. And at times, it may look like you're not becoming anything. But just remember, just as Bill Hammer says, just as an apple is at a phase in its life where it's unedible, doesn't mean that given some time, it will not ripen to usefulness. Calvin Coolidge, our 30th president in the United States, issued uh, his, uh, well, he's famous for a quote where he said, I do not choose to run. This was concerning the presidency. He had already been elected, and he was being hassled by reporters if he would run again and uh, one presidential journalist kept asking exactly why don't you want to be president again like why would you not want to 
return to that office of power. And Coolidge replied, he said, there is no chance for advancement. He said, when you've been president, you can go no higher. There, there, there is no next level above president. Even though we experience letdowns in the Christian life, we never get to a place where there's no room for spiritual growth. The Apostle Paul described himself as spiritually mature in Romans, um, I mean in Philippians 3.15. See what he says? Let the, those of us who think, uh, who think this way, those who think this way are mature. And yet he also declared that he wasn't perfect. Remember back in verse 12? He says, I haven't got to perfection. He was aiming for the goal of being like Christ in all of life's varied experiences, whether he was enjoying prosperity or enduring adversity. He knew that attaining the goal of Christ's likeness takes a lifetime. But listen, Paul was never satisfied where he was in his spiritual growth. Look, there's one thing to be said about being content. Never be content with where you are spiritually. Never be satisfied with where you are spiritually. There should always be a longing deep within our souls that, that we must go further than we than our current position. Why? Because we could always know Him better. Listen, if something is infinite, how could you ever obtain all the knowledge that you need, right? God is infinite. That means He, he has no ending to Him. So what does that mean? Is that we can never know all there is to know. So what does that mean? Is that our journey, our process of knowing the Lord never ends. There's always room for advancement. Room for improvement is the largest room in the world. Room for improvement is the largest room in the world. Well, let's move on real quick. He goes on to say, but I, I what? I press on. I think this one sentence, somebody, somebody definitively needs to hear this, this statement this, this morning. It is difficult to move forward when you keep looking back. It is difficult to keep moving forward when you keep looking back. There's a reason why the windshield is the size it is and a rear view mirror is the size it is. Now some of us need to keep stop looking back so that we can move forward. And what is true physically is even more true spiritually. If you think you've arrived and you need to think again, Listen, the reality is living for Christ can be very challenging, right? Anybody feel the, 
the, the, the, the obstacles and the challenges and the headwinds of moving forward, of pressing on with Christ? Huh? Anybody? Amen? Not easy, tough? Exhausting? You ever, you ever left doubting as to whether it's all worth it or not? Well, guess what? You're not alone. You're not alone. Look at Paul's words. Now, this is the same guy who said, press on. He says, for we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Anybody want to say amen to that one? Anybody kind of uh, 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 feel what Paul's writing in that moment? He says, indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Woo! Now that's how you press on. That's how you press on. You press on because you realize that last statement, that what, what was to make us, whatever that was that he was going through. And I love the fact that he doesn't tell us exactly what he's going through and he's enduring. But he's saying this to us. All of that that I went through, it was needful so that I would quit relying on myself, but on God. You might have gone through some stuff in 2021, and you're probably going to go through some stuff in 2022, Lord willing, and you make it all the way to the end. That, listen, those events in your life, those experiences, those circumstances, those difficulties, afflictions, hardships, whatever you want to put on them, listen, they're going to come into your life for no other reason than to make you take your hands off your life and place your hand in a nail-scarred hand and say, Jesus, you're all I got, but you're all I need. You're all I got, but you're all I need. Years ago, a group of Englishmen tried to conquer Mount Everest. They pressed on against cold wind, blizzards, avalanches. When they came within 2,000 feet of the peak, they set up camp. Two men, by the name of Mallory and Irvin, eagerly pressed on, expecting to return in about 16 hours. They never came back. The official record simply said this. When last seen... And they were heading towards the summit. Man, that'd be good to put on your tombstone as a Christian, right? <laughs> the last time we saw him, the last time we saw her, she was heading for the summit. Whatever the obstacles, let's keep pressing on in the upward call of God, trusting Him and not ourselves. At life's end, may it be said of us, when last seen, they were heading towards the summit. Paul goes on to say, to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. 
Now, that's some tricky language there. What is Paul saying? To make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. This is all that Paul is saying. You might want to write that down. That's, that may not make sense right now, but that's, 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 that's pretty good stuff. Paul's saying, Christian, you have been apprehended to apprehend. You've, that's not a word we use often. Maybe police work, it's used often to talk, in speaking of apprehending a fugitive or a criminal. But Christ has apprehended us who call ourselves Christians into the faith to do what? To apprehend some stuff. Here's what Paul's saying. You have been saved for a purpose. God has apprehended you so that you will go and apprehend some stuff for the kingdom of God. Listen, we haven't been saved just to merely sit on the sideline. We, we haven't been saved to sit and soak, or we haven't been saved to sit on the bench and watch everybody else get on the field and, and, and play the game. No, no, all Christians have been saved. We've been apprehended by Christ. Why? Because according to uh, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, it says that uh, we have been saved because there's some stuff, okay? There's some stuff that God has ordained for us to do. So every born-again Christian has been brought into the family of God to apprehend some things for God. You got purpose. Well, I know what everybody... Well, what's my purpose, Brother Jason? I don't know. And it ain't my job to figure it out. Well, how do I figure it out? Do what Paul's been doing. Pursue Christ. Don't try to figure it out what it is. Pursue Christ, and in the midst of pursuing Christ, trust me, he'll show you what it is. And there'll be times you won't even get shown. You'll just be doing it, and in the middle or at the end of doing it, you'll realize, you know what? I had no business doing any of that. I'm unqualified to do any of that. I have, I have nothing in me uh, to be able to do that, and yet I did it. Why? Because that's why I was apprehended by Christ to apprehend, to carry out a plan, a purpose, a mission in this world. Let's finish up here. Brothers, I do not consider myself to have made it my own. But, well, I left that part out. But one thing, but one thing I do. Paul had not arrived, but that did not deter him. For here we see his contrasting attitude. The literal Greek reads, but one thing, which dramatically sums up Paul's Christian conduct and purpose. Paul had a single mind and a single purpose. Paul had one aim and one ambition. The single-minded focus of Paul is like the Olympic runner who has but one goal in mind after the gun goes off, and that is to excel in any area of life. A person must say this one thing, not these 20 things. Single-minded focus will win a great reward. 
Listen, you may look at your life and you may say, there's, there's 20 things wrong with my life that I need to get fixed. There's not. There's not 20 things wrong with your life. There's not 50 things wrong with your life. There's only one. And if you want to fix what's broken, then the only way to do that is to fix the one thing that's broken. And that is this one thing. What is this one thing that Paul says? That I want to know Christ. This one thing is Christ and Christ alone. You, you see, you, I mean... You may look at your life and you may say, well, I need to get this fixed and I need to get that fixed and, I, and this is broken and that's splintered and that's shattered and, and you look through all these parts of your life and then you try to, well, I'm, I'm going to work on this and then I'm going to work on that. and then I'm gonna, No, work, look, pursue Christ, press on to Christ, make Christ the one thing of your life. Listen, and this is the gospel truth. I promise you this. As you pursue Christ, Those things that are broken will, in time and over time, find themselves to be fixed. Why? Because when you pursue Christ and you become more like Christ, the, prob the problems, the 20 problems and the 20 things that need to be fixed in your life, they need to be fixed because those are areas that have not been given to Christ. Those are areas where you keep holding on to sin and sinful behavior. And as long as you do that, those will always be broken until you pursue Christ. You may say, I need to be a more forgiving person, or I need to forgive so-and-so. No, you don't. You need to pursue Christ. If you pursue Christ, you'll become a more forgiving person. You know what? I really need to become more patient with my children or with this person or with that person. No, you don't. You need to pursue Christ. And, and, and you will become more patient. You know what? I'm not as loving as I should be. I, I, I'm too curt. I'm, I'm too short. I, I'm too ill-tempered. Ill well, no, no. You, you don't need to try to become more loving. You need to pursue Christ. I need to be a better husband. I need to be a better wife. I need to be a better uh, a child. I need to be a better whatever. No, you don't. You need to pursue Christ. I got an addiction. I, I, need, I need to get my addiction under control. No, you don't. You need to pursue Christ. This one thing. This one thing. D.L. Moody, the great evangelist from Chicago, in 1871, there was a terrible fire in Chicago, and it burnt most of the city down to the ground. Before the fire, Moody was involved in the largest Sunday school in the world. Uh, he uh, was very deeply involved in the YMCA. This is when the YMCA was still uh, definitively Christian and, and all about reaching people with the gospel. Evangelistic meetings and many other activities. But after the fire, he determined to devote himself exclusively to evangelism. He said, this one thing I do... And that's what we need to do. William Borden was a rich young man who, in the early part of the 20th century, 
had gone to Yale University, graduated from Yale University, uh, took a trip overseas as part of a graduation present. He was in Europe for several months. He came back from Europe, and uh, while, um, while there, he, he became deeply convicted about the lack of the gospel in the world. William Borden decided that he would forfeit all of his wealth and his family fortune and that he would go to uh, a part of China that was heavily Islamic in the western part of China, and he would be a missionary to this group of people that had never heard about Jesus. He got on the ship. He sailed to Egypt because he wanted to learn Arabic in order to be able to witness to those uh, uh, Islamic Chinese people in western China. While in Egypt, he contracted a fatal disease, and he died. Many people looked at the life of William Borden, and they said, what a waste. What a waste. So much potential, and yet dead way too young. It was only later that, as the effects of William Borden made its way back to the United States, that his parents were going through his journal, and the last entry in William Borden's journal were these words. No reserve, no retreat, no regret. No reserve, I'm not holding anything back. No retreat, I'm not leaving. No regret. Why? Because anything done in the pursuit of Christ is worth it all. It is worth it all. We need to pray this prayer. This might be the, your prayer for 2022 as you fight the good fight of faith. Teach me your way, O Lord, that I might walk in your truth. Here's, here's the key to it. Unite my heart to fear your name. What's that prayer all about? That prayer is all about Asking the Lord to give us the kind of disposition that he gave William Borden. No reserve, no retreat, no regrets. Unite my heart to fear your name. And then Paul leaves us with these final words. He says, forget everything that lies behind and strain to what lies ahead. There's a lot I'd like to say about this, but for the sake of time, um, I'll just shorten it down and say this. Paul tells us to forget what's behind. To forget what's behind. Now listen, forgetting does not mean obliterating the memory of the past but a conscious refusal to let them absorb his attention and impede his progress. Say that to you one more time. A conscious refusal to let them absorb his attention and impede his progress. You can't forget what's happened. You can't forget what you've done. You can't undo what you've done. But listen... 
some of us really need to take this to heart this morning because, like I said earlier, some of us are not moving forward because we are impeded by what we keep looking at behind us. Paul says, forget what lies behind. Move on for it. Quit letting it hold you back and strain to what lies ahead. The Italians have a New Year's Eve tradition. It's, it's weird. I mean, not to them, but it's weird to us. And, and that is, on New Year's Eve, they clear the streets. No one's allowed to go into the city streets. Even the policemen take cover. Then at the stroke of 12, the windows of houses fly open to the sound of laughter, music, and fireworks. Each member of the family pitches out old cockery, detested ornaments, hated furniture, and a whole catalog of personal possessions which remind them of something in the past year that the past year they are determined to wipe out of their minds. You know what some of us need to do? We, we need to open up that little window in our heart, and there's some stuff we need to chunk on out the, into the city streets and be done with it. And say, what's done is done. I can't fix it. I can't change it. It is what it is. But you know what I'm not going, going to do? I'm not going to let that keep me from moving on spiritually. Listen. Paul had some stuff in his past that he could have easily let keep, that he could have easily allowed to impede his progress. Number one, he was a murderer. And he had killed a lot of Christians. And hey, listen, guess who he was spending his time with? Christians. Don't you think it's a possibility that some of these cities and towns that he went in where he had murdered Christians, that some of the people that he was now ministering to were the very family members or spouses or children of the people that he had murdered? If anybody had something in their past that would impede their future progress, it would have been Paul. But what did Paul say to these Philippians? Don't let that stop you. Put it behind you and press on. Why? Because God has put it behind him. Do I need to remind you of what God does with the sin of his people? What does he do with it? says he puts it behind his back. Y'all familiar with that verse? Uh, you probably know the one where it says he throws it into the depths of the sea, right? You, you might know the one where it says he removes it as far as the east is from the west. But you may not be familiar with the psalmist says, he hides it behind his back. Listen, if God's put it behind him, why don't you put it behind you? And why don't you pursue the one thing worth pursuing? Not starting Saturday, because there's nothing magical about it, but starting right here, right now. Come on, David. Starting right here, right now, why don't you start and say, hey, do a quick inventory. 
You may not even have to do a quick inventory. Why? Because, that, because you already know what that stuff is. It, 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 if your stuff could be a couch, a chair, a, a piece of clothing or whatever, and you could chuck it out the window, what would that be? What needs to be thrown out and left behind so that you can move forward? What do you need to put behind you that God's already... Some of, listen, some of us, we, we still can't believe that God's forgiven us of all that we've asked him to forgive us of. And we keep bringing it up, and God keeps saying, what are you talking about? Some of us are still holding on to something we did 10 years ago, some sin of 10 years ago. And we probably asked God 100 times, Lord, forgive me of that. And the Lord keeps saying, well, I forgave you 99 times back. I don't even know what you're talking about anymore. I put it behind me. Put it behind you. And let's move on. Let's press on. Why? Because I brought you into this family knowing how messed up you are because I'm going to make something of you. I got some things that I need you to apprehend. I got a work that I need you to, to do for me. Why? Because I'm going to start doing this work in you, and what's going to happen is you're going to start doing this work for me. But, but, but we're not making a lot of progress because you won't leave the past in the past, and, and you won't get to running this way. Why don't you bow your head and close your eyes with me? Is that you this morning? Is that, is that where you are? You, you're treading water. You, you're, you're one step forward, three steps back. You, you feel like you're in limbo. You're in traction. I mean, you, you're just not going anywhere spiritually. What, what is it that you've got to put behind you? Because, listen, that is the only reason why you're not moving forward this morning is because there's something or some things that you will not put behind you. What are the 20 things that you're trying to fix in your life and you have done a terrible job and been unsuccessful at, at all of them and yet you fail to realize what the one part of your life that needs to be fixed and that is you need to focus on Christ. And so this morning, I'm just going to ask you in, to stay in the posture that you're in. I'm not even going to ask you to Sing with David. I'm going to ask David to sing this song. I'm going to ask you to remain in a posture of prayer. The altar's open if you want to come pray down at the altar. Whatever, you, whatever the Lord is nudging you to do this morning, that's what we want you to do. That's what I want you to do. And maybe this morning you just don't even know the Lord at all. You're, you're not a Christian. And you say, you know what? I just want to, I want to take step one. If you, if you want to do that, then I'm going to be sitting down front on the middle, middle section here. I'd love for you to come. I'd love to talk to you and pray with you this morning. But as this song is sung, I want you to do some serious heart business with the Lord this morning. Go ahead, David.